good to have you here. Hope you uh, hope you're enjoying summer, and I hope you're really ready for summer because I hear it's coming like today, today, something like that. Anyone like excited? All right, awesome. I like how it's always just one person in a couple. You know, so, like you don't have any two people going. Yeah, it's. That works so well. Well, uh, we are uh, making our way through a, a study, a 12-week study in the life of Moses. And today we're coming to Exodus chapter 32, and I want to preface it by just giving you a, a story. Uh, this is a story that happened to me um, back when I was in college. Uh, I, I grew up in Orange County, California, and I went to college in Phoenix, Arizona. So if you've ever driven from L.A. to Phoenix, you know that basically you hop on the I-10 and you drive for six hours East. The road is pretty level. It's uh, pretty straight. Uh, most of the way, it's really boring. There's like nothing to look at but desert. And so I, I'd made that trip many times. Now, there were a couple of guys from my church in California who also attended the same college that I was attending in, in Phoenix. And uh, one of them had graduated a year earlier, and he was actually married, had a child, had a full-time job. Both his parents uh, were part of the church I, I belonged to in California, and his parents were both lawyers, um, had lots of money, and they wanted to give their son a gift. Um, they, in fact, this is the, the gift they wanted to give him. In 1955, Bella, that they had completely restored, it was beautiful and ready to go, and the dad called me, and he said, um, I'm wondering if you would be interested in driving the Bel Air um, from L.A. to um, our son's house in Phoenix. And what, what it would involve is just you could pick any weekend you want, uh, maybe a four-day weekend, and I'll, you know, I'll pay to fly you home. You can hang out at home with your family for a couple days, and then come pick up the car, and you just drive to Phoenix. And I'll give you some money for it as well for your trouble. So, you know, I'm in college. I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. So, <laughs> fly to California, spend the weekend with my family, uh, go to meet up uh, with, with him, get the car. And uh, as he's going to hand me the envelope, he's a lawyer, he's smart, he's like, oh, I forgot to tell you, there's a couple stipulations, All right? Uh, one is, um, you, I don't want you to drive this thing over 55. Okay, so, you know there's that song, I can't drive 55, That's, that was written about me, because I can't drive. I always say I hit 55 twice, once going past it, up, and once going down, but I don't drive 55, so I'm just like, you know what, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it, because he had an envelope with money. Second thing, he said, I don't want you to stop. I don't want you going through any drive-throughs. I don't want you dinging up or anything. The only place I want you to stop is at uh, a gas station. Okay, that's it. Um, that's why I'm paying you. Stop at a gas station, put some gas in it. Don't leave the car alone. This is the money so that you can get it there. I just want to make sure. Spend a lot of time on this that it gets there. I'd agree to anything at this point because it keeps going like this with the money. So I'm like, yeah, 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 I'll do it. I'll only stop at gas stations. Yeah, and I'll only drive 55. Uh, man, I've repented for that. So anyways, uh, gave me the money, got in the car, started driving. So again, if you've driven that, that stretch of highway, you know, man, after a couple hours, it's just so boring. And I, I got across the Arizona state line. It's driving and driving and driving. The other thing I didn't think about was they didn't put uh, air conditioning in a 55 Bel Air. So I'm just driving across the desert, hot as can be. I'm getting really drowsy, really tired. And, and you may know there's like, there's just, you know, lots of stretches on that highway where there's nothing. But every now and then there'll be these, uh, there'll be these off-ramps. Kind of interesting thing. There'll be an off-ramp, it's paved, you go off. But it doesn't really go anywhere. You get off. And there's an there's a over-ramp, and it basically leads to getting right back on the freeway, going across and going the other way, but that's it. And there may be a dirt road in each direction just going off into the desert, but it's not paved. And So anyways, I got off one of these off-ramps, and 
you can't really tell till you get off there. There's nothing there. Got off, there's nothing there. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? I, I said I'd only stop at a gas station, but I'm so tired. I, I'm sure I'll understand. And so I just decided I'd, I'd pull off the road and I'd just, you know, rest for half an hour and get back on the road. And so I, I pulled off. So there's the only thing paved is the road. I pull off into the sand and I discovered the second thing about the Bel Air I didn't know, and that was it doesn't have four-wheel drive. And so I immediately got stuck in the sand and I can't get this beast of a car to go anywhere, to do anything. So now I'm in the car, turn it off, it's hot, I, I, I want to rest, but I can't get the car out of the sand. I'm in the middle of nowhere, I don't have a cell phone, um, they barely had rotary phones at that point in world history, and so, you know, so uh, I'm like, I don't know what to do, so I just sat in the car and I started praying earnestly. The, the only thing I could think of was I was going to have to walk down uh, back to the freeway, okay, which is a really bad plan, and try to flag down somebody on the I-10 in the middle of the day in the middle of Arizona, but I, I couldn't think of anything else. So I'm sitting in the car, and I'm resting, and I'm praying earnestly, God, please just, please do something. I don't know what to do. I, I confess. I made a mistake. I sinned. I wasn't supposed to stop, and I did, and I repent, and I'm on my knees. God, will you do anything? And I'm sitting in the car, and I notice off in the distance, way off in that there's a mountain range. I notice way off in the distance a little point of like some, some dust in the air, and I kind of look, and it's coming towards me, slowly coming towards me, and after a while, I can make out that it's a pickup truck. There's a pickup truck and it's coming right toward me and pretty soon it's coming right up and I can see and I'm like Oh, thank God. It's an angel in a pickup truck like come to rescue me I was so excited and the truck comes right up guy pulls right up in front of me backs around backs up to the car Guy gets out of his truck pulls a chain out of the back of his, his truck Walks up gets underneath the Bel Air hooks it up that he hasn't said a word to me gets up looks at me and says he says uh, You know put it in you know, start it up, put it in drive, so I, I get in, turn it on, I don't know who this guy is, he gets in his truck, pulls me out of the sand, opens his door, gets on, unhooks it, looks at me and says, yeah, don't worry, it happens, happens all the time, and he said, don't drive this thing in the sand anymore, got in his truck, and he left, all right? So here's why I tell you this story, because that has always been, for me, this thing that sticks in the, in the front of my mind when I, when I read passages like we're going to look at today. Because there I was, I was stuck in a situation of my own making. I had caused it. I did what I was not supposed to do, and I was stuck on the side of the road because of a bad decision that I had made. Now I say that because we, folks, we live in a world where every day, every day we are, metaphorically speaking, right, we are, we are, passing by people in life who are stuck on the side of the road in their own sin. It's sin of their own making. Yes, they are guilty for what they've done, but they are stuck. They are stuck in trouble. And, and the question becomes, what do we do? What do we do when we're going through life, going through, you know, the neighborhood, going at, in our family, at work, at school, and we're, we're brushing up against people who are stuck in their own sin? Do we just drive by? You know, do, uh, do we just, as we go by, do we condemn them? Well, that's what you deserve. You, should, you knew better than to pull off on the side of the road in the sand, and yet you did it anyways. Uh, do we pull over and lecture them? You know, or maybe sometimes we just enable them. We're just like, let me fix this for you. I'll let me bail you out. Well, we're going through the life of Moses. We're taking 12 weeks to go through mostly passages in, in Exodus. And so we've been doing this a little while. We talked about how Moses was 
was born uh, 3,500 years ago in a very interesting time in Israel's history. They were slaves. These were people who were stuck. Uh, They were stuck as slaves, and they could not get themselves out of the situation. And God raises up Moses, and we have the ten plagues, and, you know, the whole let my people go, and Pharaoh says no, and we've got the the miracles. We have Passover. It goes across the Red Sea. Eventually, they come to the mountain of God. Uh, Moses goes up. You know, he's, he's meeting with God. Um, Mike Collins did a great job talking about that last week. He receives the, the, the Ten Commandments uh, and, and, and an instruction on how to live in a relationship with God and live in a relationship with other people. And then um, they agree, the Israelites agree to the law. Yes, we'll live with God as our king. And now in Exodus 32, which is where we are today, Moses goes back up to the mountain a second time to meet with God. And up there, this time, he receives the Ten Commandments on tablets that God himself inscribes on them. And he receives instructions for building this thing called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is just this this tent that they will build that will travel with them. And even though God uh, exists on his throne in heaven and he is omnipresent, that is, he is everywhere, he would exist in a very special way in this tent. And as Israel traveled, he would travel with them. Really kind of this cool, amazing gift he's giving them. So Moses is up there. It's, it's 40 days that's, that this is going on. And meanwhile, Israel's at the foot of the mountain and they're getting restless. They start to wonder, where is Moses? You know, it's been a week, two weeks, three weeks. They start murmuring. You know, what has he done? Maybe he took all our, all our money and, you know, he bought it. He bought a house on the Mediterranean. They are, they're not really sure where he is now. Um, they're feeling vulnerable. So they go, to, they go to Aaron, who's second in charge. He's Moses' brother. And they go to him, and I, I imagine the conversation goes something like this. You know, in, in Egypt, we had a whole bunch of gods because we had a whole bunch of needs. Now we're in the middle of the desert. We are more vulnerable than we've ever been, and we have one god? And so these people are used to having a lot of gods. We have a God for food. We have a God for protection. We, you know, we have a God for our army. We have a, a God for good weather. We have a God for water. We have a God for relationships, fertility, and all that. And they want more gods because right now they just have one. So they go to Aaron and they say, we need some more gods. And so Aaron makes them an idol, makes them another god. It's a, it's a golden calf. And then they decide to have a festival. They're going to have the very first ever cow fest, you know. And they got like the t-shirts, right? Got gods on it. And like they set up a, a beer and milk garden. I don't know, something like that. And, um, and they have this big festival and there's dancing going on, all this. Now remember, these are people who had already received and agreed to the Ten Commandments. The first commandment being you shall have no other gods. Now they've already broken that. And the second being you shall not make idols. And now they've done that. So meanwhile, Moses is up on the mountain. He has no idea what his people are doing. And in the middle of his meeting with God, God interrupts it and the Lord says to Moses, I need you to go down, right, for your people, your people, right, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly. Like, it didn't even take a couple of months, Moses. And I know to us, 40 days seems like a long time, but God, like, Man, they were like, that was fast. They didn't waste any time, did they? And they have corrupted themselves. They have turned quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Now, a lot has been made in this passage of God's reference to your people. And some people think what God is doing here is he's, he's disowning the Israelites. He's saying, you know, I don't want them anymore, Moses. Like, they're, they're your people. Instead, I don't think that's going on at all. I think what's happening here is God is telling Moses, hey, those, those guys down there, those losers who are making all those bad decisions stuck on the side of the road, like, they're your family. 
right? How often when somebody close to you does something really stupid, do you just want to distance yourself from them? And God's like, no, no, you, this is not the time you put distance between yourself and the guilty. This is the time you get involved. This is the time you take responsibility. I mean, in this life, folks, you know, when you don't just disown your guilty child, you don't disown your spouse or your friend or your neighbor because they sin and make a mistake, even if it's against you. And neither should Moses do this. And God says they have made for themselves a golden calf and they have worshipped it and they have sacrificed to it. Like, he's just telling Moses, it's really that bad. These, uh, and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So this is the context, this is the setting, and here's the big idea for this, this weekend. God calls us, just as God called Moses, God will call us to something deeper than having relationships where we merely judge or ignore people who sin. In other words, a lot of times when people around us sin and they are guilty, they, they sin and now they're stuck on the side of the road in their sin. Some of us, just by temperament, have the tendency to just lower the boom and judge them and, and lecture them and reject them and condemn them. On the other hand, some of us tend to avoid that altogether, so we'll just, you know, we'll pretend it didn't happen. And God's calling us to neither one of those things because neither one of those are helpful. He calls us relationally to something in the middle, to step into the messiness, to, to intercede. That word intercede means to intervene on, the, on behalf of another person. So this is where we're going this morning. When people around you sin, when people around you are guilty, we're not talking about the innocent, but the guilty. Yes, they blew it. Yes, they sin. And they're stuck on the side of the road. What do we do? What is the role that God has called us to? So I want, to, I want you to note what Moses does here that's instructive for us. The first thing is this. Moses starts by going to God. He doesn't go to the person. He doesn't go to Israel. He doesn't go to Aaron first. He goes to God first. And so should we. When we see people around us who are sinning, the first thing that we should do is we should go to God. In verse 9, we pick up the story. And the Lord said to Moses, Now I've seen this people, and behold, they are a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. So, a couple things to, to break this down. First of all, God calls them a stiff-necked people. And the picture here is, imagine having a horse or, or an ox, and you put the bit in its mouth, and you have the reins, and you would just basically steer the animal. But a stiff-necked animal is one that will not take direction. It just kind of stiffens up, and you can't do it. This is, this is what Israel was like. We've all met stiff-necked people, haven't we? Stiff-necked people are people who always think they're right. right? Stiff-necked people never admit when they're wrong. They don't listen to wise counsel. They don't take direction. They're unwilling to be corrected. They complain when they don't get their way. They don't learn from their mistakes, and they don't even realize it. That's the thing. They don't even realize it. They're stiff-necked. They will not take direction from God. And God says that he is angry with them. Now, this is where a lot of people begin to stumble in this passage. They, 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 they struggle with the idea of God being angry. And I'm convinced that I think the reason many of us struggle with the idea of God being angry is because we imagine that God's anger is like our anger. And we project our anger on him. And here's what I mean. We don't tend to do anger well, right? When we get angry, we tend to become irrational, right? We, when we get angry, we, we become very self-righteous and, and, and we become kind of blind to the other side of things. 
When we get angry, we, we tend to get mean. We tend to say and do things that we'll regret later. That's like one of the big signs. You know, when later you're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. We, we burn bridges. We become very judgmental. We, you know, we, we lash out on Facebook. We just kind of vent on somebody. It's just vague enough to where we don't mention their name, but everyone knows who we're talking about. And, and basically what we do is we sin. That's the thing. Most of us, when we get angry, we don't do anger well and we sin. And, and when I see anger, that's usually a red flag to me. It, it, when I see anger in myself, um, it usually raises, raises a red flag because I rarely do anger well. My wife and I talked about that last night. We were able to laugh about it. <laughs> but it's never funny when it happens, is it? Like, and I rarely see anger done well. Over the years, I can't tell you how many times I sat across the table from someone who's come to me as their pastor, someone who is angry, someone who is upset, someone who will sit down and they will, they will just vent to me about what somebody did to them or someone said to them, and I'll just watch them from across the table. And most of the time, in my head, the only conversation I'm having is I, just to try not to think less of them because as I hear them venting, they're so irrational at this point. They are so unlike Christ at this point. And I know that later they will come to regret it. So at the time, I just try to have grace because, again, I've rarely, rarely seen it done well. But God never sins. God's anger is always appropriate. God's anger is what the Bible calls righteous. God never overreacts to sin. Never. Whenever he reacts to sin and we don't get why he makes such a big deal of it, it's because we don't get it. Not because he's getting it wrong. Neither does God downplay sin like many of us do. Well, just live and, live and let live. God doesn't do that either because that's not helpful for the other person. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on in these verses here, but one of the things I want to bring out is this. See, I don't believe that it was ever God's plan to destroy the Israelites. I don't think that's what's going on here. And there's a few, a few cues to this. First of all, we noticed earlier that God doesn't tell Moses, hey, Moses, just sit right here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to torch all of you know, those people, and we'll start a new family. He tells Moses, I want you to go down there. I want you to go down in the middle of it. Go down into the mess. Because God wants Moses to intervene, intercede, jump into the middle of it. The second thing is that, that God refers to the Israelites as Moses' people. Now, they still belong to God, and he knows that. Scripture says that he is faithful even when we are, are faithless. He will never disown his own. I, I believe that what's happening is God is, is pushing Moses. He's pushing him to get involved. He's pushing him to realize that he is his brother's keeper. right? That, that they are his neighbor. And this is a, a, a big issue for us sometimes. When we're driving down the road of life and we see someone stuck in, in a problem of their own making... How often do we just think, I'm just going to keep driving by because I don't have time for that mess and, and, and the potential drama and the conflict, right? So I'm just going to keep going. He's telling Moses, you can't do that with the people that you care about and love. God is pushing Moses to get involved, even for, notice this, even for sinners, right? Because for many of us, when we see people who are hurting and struggling and we feel like, oh, well, they're innocent, they don't deserve it, we love to jump in and help them. But this isn't for the innocent, this is for the guilty, Jump in and help the guilty. So Moses begins to pray. Literally, he's interceding at this point. He begins by going to God, not to the people, not to Facebook, not to Twitter. He goes to God. Verse 11, but Moses implored, very strong language here. He implores the Lord his God and he says, 
O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a, with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did God bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And then Moses, he just says, hey, remember Abraham? Remember Isaac? Remember Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self? And you said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Now, now notice several really interesting things here. First of all, Moses doesn't excuse Israel's sin. Moses knows that he is not interceding for the innocent. Right now, a lot of times we get prayer requests. Pray for so-and-so. They're sick. They have cancer. They're in a car accident. They were innocent. They, and again, right, it's easy for us to pray for them, but that's not this. It's like God gives a prayer request to Moses. I need you to pray for these people who are a mess. They are, in fact, they're sinning right at this very moment. Moses, they're sinning against me. They're sinning against you. And asking, Moses is asking God to save the guilty. Right? He's asking God to save the innocent. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? He's hanging on the cross, and what does he pray for the people who are killing him? Father, what? Forgive them. Forgive who? Forgive the guilty. Forgive those who are rejecting me and crucifying me. Can you see how that's different than the way many of us think today? It's like what Jesus said to the religious leaders. You have heard it said, love your, you know, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No, but I say to you, love your enemy. Second thing that happens here, this is interesting. Moses quotes God to God. So, so this is, and, and again, understand, I don't think that what's happening here is Moses is like using reverse psychology on God. I think what's happening is God is leading Moses into a situation to remember what God has said. And so what Moses says to God is, hey, God, remember that these are your people and that you chose them and that you brought them out of Egypt for your glory and you worked miracles. And really, I think what's happening is this is more for Moses than it is for God. You see, in difficult situations, it's always helpful to remember what God has said, isn't it? What has God said about difficult people? What has God said about troubles? What has God said about righteousness and sin? And what has God said? And so God has kind of driven Moses into this corner where he's, he's reciting God to God, which, by the way, is always good for us. Not that God needs to remember what he said. And the third thing is this. Moses invests himself. So here's what you don't see in this passage, but Deuteronomy 9.25 tells us this. Get this. Moses didn't just pray for Israel. He prayed for 40 days and nights for Israel. Now that is a, that is a prayer meeting, right? Like not 40 hours. Let me ask you, when was the last time that you accumulated 40 hours of prayer for some guilty person in your life who, who is struggling, who is stuck? How about 40 minutes? How about 40 seconds? How about just shy of a minute? When's the last time there was somebody in your life who was stuck on the side of the road and it's their fault and you took 40 seconds to just pray for them, to just lift them up? This is, this is what Moses does. And then it, it tells us this, and the Lord relented. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken. Not, it doesn't say he planned it. It doesn't, begin, it doesn't say that he was diving into it, but he just spoken of bringing to his people now, this is another passage where people start to really stumble at this point. Some look at it and say, oh, so God changed his mind. So God must have been wrong, 
and now he's right. Uh, some call it uh, f- uh, kind of free deism here. This idea that God can change his mind, that God doesn't always do the right thing. Folks, God, I believe what's happening here is that God didn't change his mind. Instead, he's using the situation to change Moses' mind, to, to change Moses' way of thinking. God is trying to help Moses think like he thinks. God is trying to help Moses understand why sin is such a big deal and why it needs to be dealt with. God is pushing Moses to think differently, to think like like him. He's pushing Moses to think like an intercessor. He's pushing Moses to pray for them. Again, to pray for the guilty. To plead for them. To to give up 40 days and nights for them. Not, Not to pray against the people who rejected him, but to pray for them. And I believe this is God's plan all along, to move Moses to a new way of thinking about what it means to lead people and what it means to serve people, how, what it means to do relationships with people. You don't just walk away when people sin, when they become guilty, when they're kind of stuck in that. You don't just walk away. You don't just ignore them. You jump in. You play the role of an intercessor. He's learning how to really love other people, even when they're guilty. And like Moses, folks, we are called to be intercessors as well. We are called to be those who pray, not just for the innocent, but for the guilty, for the guilty, that we would pray for unbelievers who are living like unbelievers and making a mess of of their life, that we would pray for them, not against them, that we would pray for the Christian who knows better but falls into sin anyways, that we would pray for them, intercede for them. That we would pray for a political leader that we don't like. We won't just go on Facebook and gripe about them and complain about them and badmouth them, but pray about them. I, I wonder sometimes how many Christians who go on social media and gripe and complain about political leaders and other people have actually earned the right to do that by praying first. By taking it to God first, by getting on their knees first. Folks, I, I think part of what's going on here is we have no right to just be critical, griping people when we haven't taken it to God first. God, forgive us for the times that we've done that. For our difficult neighbor, for our boss, for our child, for our enemy. In 1 Timothy 2, it says this, and I don't have it on the screen or in your notes. Let me just read it for you. First of all then, I urge, this is for all of us, that supplication and prayers, here you go, and intercessions, that's what this is, praying, to intercede, and thanksgiving be made for all people, not just your friends, Not just other Christians, but all people. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Who desires, big, big, big idea here. Who desires all people to be saved and all people to come to a knowledge of the truth? We are to pray like Moses, to pray like Jesus, to pray like Paul has instructed. That the guilty might receive mercy just as we have. That that God would give them faith, that God would give them repentance. Here's my first question. Who do you need to intercede for right now? Who is it that's stuck on the side of the road, sin of their own making, but they need someone to pray for them? And then here's the second thing, and this is, it's the second thing, but oftentimes for us it's the first thing, right? Then you go to the person. So first you go to God, and then you go to the person, right? In verse 17, here's what it says. Then Moses turned, and he went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, double-sided, printed by God. On the front and the back, they were written. And the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. 
And when Joshua, Joshua had gone up partway uh, up the mountain with him and waited for Moses. And, and now they're coming down. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people, right, because the cow fest is going on down at the bottom of the mountain, and he hears the noise of people shouting, and he says to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp, so he can't quite make it out. Are they laughing? Are they crying? I don't know what's going on. But Moses said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory. It is not the sound of the cry of defeat but the sound of singing that I hear. Apparently not very good singing because Joshua thought it was war. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And now, now he's really kind of getting what God gets here. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain and he took the calf that they had made and he burned it with fire and he ground it to powder and he scattered it on the water, and he made the people of Israel drink it. So imagine what Moses sees. He's coming down the mountain. He catches sight of this big, golden, grass-eating, milk-giving, mooing deity, and, and people are worshiping it. Verse 6 suggests that they may be drunk by this point. There's inappropriate dancing. I know, you know, Baptists think all dancing is inappropriate, but Israel would dance, they're dancing, they're singing. It's not dancing and singing to God, okay? It's, in fact, some believe that sexual immorality is going on here. So Moses walks down, he sees the scene, he smashes the tablets, demonstrating that they had broken God's law, and then he takes the idol, he burns it with fire, he pulverizes it, liquefies it, and makes the people drink it. He's like, here, you want an idol? You think this is going to satisfy your soul? Drink this down. See how this tastes to you. But the main thing is he gets rid of it entirely. He gets rid of the idol. And this is another thing that intercessors do. They call out sin, and they challenge other people to forsake their sin, to destroy it, to unplug it, to, you know, unsubscribe from it, to throw it out, to avoid it, to confess it to someone. And it says that Moses' anger burned hot. Moses is now feeling what God feels. But in the middle of this, again, I would just give you a warning. In Ephesians 4, 26, it says, Be angry and do not, what? Do not sin. Do not sin. See, the key is this. Again, our anger is rarely righteous. The key to righteous anger is it must be directed by God, under the influence of God, under God's control, never self-directed, but God-directed. It must be prayerful, right? That's what Moses did. First, he prays for 40 days. Think about it. Before he unleashes his Facebook tirade, right, he prays for 40 days. He takes it to God. And now he's God-led and God-directed. And next thing he does is he confronts Aaron. So Aaron was the guy who was in charge while Moses was gone. And so now he's going to go up and confront Aaron as a leader of Israel about this sin. Right, this, is, this is where it gets tough. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you? Uh, let, he almost sounds sympathetic. What did they do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? So Moses kind of meets with Aaron, his brother. Right? And, and he says to them, I, again, I, I picture it as sympathetic. What did they do? What did these people do to you? Did they threaten you? Did they, did, did they hold your family ransom? Like, there must have done something terrible to you to cause you to do this unbelievably great sin that you have done. And notice what he says here. What did the people do that you have brought it, that you have brought it upon these people? He's holding Aaron accountable. I mean, he's just staring him in the eyes. You ever had a conversation like that? Right? And it's just, I'm sure that it was a difficult conversation for Moses to have with his brother who he loved. I think it was a conversation that many of us avoid at all cost. 
we don't want to be Moses. We don't want to risk the drama and the, the, you know, the, the conflict, the potential consequences. What if they reject me? You know, what if they punch me? What if there's some kind of you know, fallout from this? But the thing is, this is what you do when you're an intercessor. Because to not do this is just selfish. And quite frankly, it's unloving and it's unhelpful. How does it help the other person? When you see them stuck and you see them sinning and you've taken it to God and you say nothing. You say nothing to help them. In verse 22, here's Aaron's response. Uh, by the way, this is a great study in how not to confess your sin. Here we go. And Aaron said to his brother, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. You know what they're like. You know they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And so they, they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire. And by the way, watch this. A, a miracle of miracles, I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Weirdest thing is like this calf that came. Now here's how not to confess your sin when you're confronted. Notice three things he did. First of all, he turned it around and blamed his accuser. He told his accuser to back off. That is something our society loves to do. When we are confronted with sin, what do we do? We turn it around and say, well, I think you have the problem. I think you're the judgmental one. I think you're the one with the anger problem. This is what our society does now. And we've kind of learned to do this as Christians. Hey, I've seen you. You're not perfect either. You've got issues, you know. What's your problem? And this is what he does. He tells his brother to calm down. In fact, what he says is, Moses, I think maybe you're the one with the problem here. The second thing he does is he blames other people. He says to Moses, like, you've met these people, right? You, you know how set on evil they are. And again, this is what we do today. Well, it's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. It's society's fault. It's my boss's fault. The internet's fault. And here's the third thing he does. He, he spins the facts. I, I love how he does. He says, you know, I don't, it was the weirdest thing, Moses. I, I threw the gold in the fire and out came this calf. Now, earlier we get the truth of the situation. It says this, that it was Aaron who came up with the plan, Aaron who gathered the gold, Aaron who melted it down, Aaron who carved it to look like a calf, Aaron who built an altar, and Aaron who organized the worship service. And yet, what does he do? He spins it and says, yeah, I don't know how it happened. It was really weird. Instead, when our sin is called out, folks, we need to learn to just be quiet for a minute, admit our sin, own it, call it what it is. I'm a complainer, a liar, greedy, an idolater, whatever it is. Just own it. See, this is part of intercession, by the way, to help the guilty face the facts. Right? So they're stuck in the sin. How are they going to get out? Someone needs to speak truth to them. But again, we don't simply judge them. We don't write them off. We don't just go to and talk about them to other people. We talk to them. First we talk to God, now we talk to them. We speak truth in love. We confront, we challenge. This is what it tells us in Ephesians. Rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Second question for you, who do you need to talk to as an intercessor? Who have you prayed for? All right, so... You need to be prayed at first. And again, this is always a little disconcerting. Most pastors get a little concerned about preaching a sermon where they tell people, hey, just go out and confront everybody in your life who's sinned. It's like an all-out brawl in the foyer afterwards, right? I, pray for them first. But once you pray for them, who do you need to have a discussion with? Now, I need to wrap this up. There's, there's a third thing in here, and that is dealing with the consequences that we're not going to have time to talk about today. But the, the last thing I want to mention quickly is this. And this should have been point one. 
but I made a point for, and that is we always want to start with the intercessor, with the intercessor. So before we can be an intercessor, we need to start with the intercessor. And, and I get this, again, going on in the passage a little bit in verse 31. Here's kind of how it wraps up. So Moses returned to the Lord, and he said to the Lord, Alas, these people have sinned a great sin. So he knows they're guilty. And they have made for themselves gods of gold, right? The very thing you said not to do. And, but now if you will forgive their sin, God, so he's, again, he's praying for them. If you'll forgive their sin, but if you won't, then please blot out me uh, of your book in which you have written. Now, commentators debate a little bit about what this book is that Moses wants to be blotted out of if they won't be forgiven of their sin. Two ideas. One is that it's the book of the living. So the, the Bible talks about a book that exists that God has and everybody who's alive is their name is written in that book. And when their name is blotted out, they're no longer walking the face of this earth. All right, so it's a book of who's alive. There's a second book, which is the book of life. And that is, that is those who live eternally in God's presence. And so he may be saying, you know, just blot out my name from living on this earth or blot out my name from the book of life. But either way, what he's saying is this. God, if you have to destroy someone, destroy me. Destroy me, but save. But save your people. And Moses is praying in a way that no one has prayed in the Bible before up to this point. Moses is presenting himself as a sacrifice for the atonement of other people. He's offering offering himself as an atonement for Israel's sin. So we've told you this almost every week. Moses is what we call a type of Jesus. He's not Jesus, but he's like Jesus. He gives us a picture of Jesus. 1,500 years before Jesus is on the face of the earth, Moses is already giving us some clues about what Jesus will be like. In John 10, 11, Jesus talks about this very idea. He says, I am the good shepherd. Um, I, uh, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now Moses was willing to lay down his life for his sheep so that they could be forgiven of their sin, but he couldn't do it because Moses was a sinner and therefore not qualified to die for the sins of others. And this is the gospel. Right? You could think of it this way. Let's think of our story. Right? God and Moses are up on the mountain. Here's the gospel. God is up in heaven and we are down below. Jesus is with him up in heaven and we are down below. God is up in heaven living righteously. We are down below sinning at the foot of the mountain. We are guilty. We are sinners. So what does God do? He sends down his son down the mountain. His son comes down to us. He lives among us. He speaks truth to us. Right? He talks about sin. He talks about righteousness. He talks about God, the truth of God. He lives among us. He lives a perfect life. And at the end of that time, he goes to a cross. And on that cross, he takes all of our sin, the sin of the guilty, he prays for us, the guilty. He says, Father, forgive them. He intercedes for us by taking our sin on the cross. He dies for us. He raises from the dead for us. And what scripture says is any who trust in Jesus, any who place their trust in him are forgiven of their sin. They're made right with God. God pulls them, if you will, out of the sand of their own sin of being stuck on the side of the road. And he makes us his children. We belong to him. We are, we are saved. Jesus is our intercessor. We can never do the work of, of, of interceding for others until we know the intercessor, until we worship and love and follow the intercessor, until we, we follow the example of the intercessor. Jesus prayed compassionately for others. So we do as well. He prayed for the guilty. So we pray for the guilty. He spoke truth to them. 
So we speak truth to them. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul puts it this way. All this is from God, talking about the gospel, talking about the life that God has given us. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, that has made us right with him, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. That's what we do. We are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Christ in this earth. God making his appeal through us, and we implore you. Paul says we're imploring you, we're begging, we're pleading for you. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so this is what we do as we go through this, this life. We don't just go around driving by people who are stuck on the side of the road and say, well, you deserve that, well, you deserve that, hope it works out for you, judging them. We pull over on the side of the road. We pray for them. We speak truth to them. We intercede for them. We get involved in the messiness of life. This is what intercessors do. This is what Jesus did for us. This is what Moses did for his people. When I was, uh, when I was in high school, um, I became a Christian as a freshman in high school, and I attended a little Baptist church down the street from my house. And um, the youth pastor who was there just had such a, a huge influence on my life. And after two years, he moved um, to work at another church that was about 35, 40 minutes away from where I lived. But my, his ministry to me was so powerful, I made the trip and I started traveling 35 to 40 minutes um, every time I went to church, which was a lot because I was involved in leading worship for the youth group and sometimes in the, in the church uh, worship services as well, involved in leadership. And so I would make that drive. And this was a much bigger Baptist church. And, um, and so... <laughs> Uh, this is kind of the way it works. One, one time there was an event going on and um, the church issued me a key to get into the building. So in a Baptist church, this is how you know that you have arrived in the pinnacle of power when you are given a key to the building of the church, right? It doesn't just happen to anyone. You've got to be fully vetted and prayed over and hands are laid on and then they give you a key. And so they gave me a key and I was, I was so proud to have that key. And, but then they said, we want the key back when you're done with the event. So we did the event and then a few days later, time went by and nobody asked me for the key and I had the key and I, I sometimes I would go to, I would go to church, I'd, there'd be a meeting or something and I'd get there early because of traffic and I'd have nowhere to go and nowhere to be. And so the next time I went, I had this key and I'm like, hey, I got the power, man. I can, I can go in the church and just sit in the library and read a book, or I could do what I love to do. I, go into the, I could get in the sanctuary, and I could you know, work on worship music on the piano, and so I, I did. I went, felt a little guilty, but I'm like, yeah, this is God's work, and I went in the front door, and I went into the sanctuary, and I worked on some worship music, and I'm like, man, this is great. This is so handy, and so a couple days later, I did it again, and then I did it again, and pretty soon, a month goes by, and I'm living this life, this kind of dual life where, like, every time I do it, I'm sinning, right? Because I'm a Baptist and I have a key I'm not supposed to have. This is really bad stuff. And I go in and here's the irony. Here's the irony. I'm, I'm, I'm sneaking into the church when no one's there and I'm working on worship music and I'm trying to convince myself that it's all justified. It's worship. It's, it's ministry with this key I'm not supposed to have. And after about a month goes by and I'm feeling really guilty, Actually, this is great because it was this point in the story last night that someone else felt guilty in our church because they had a key they're not supposed to have and they came up and confessed <laughs> afterwards. It was really awesome. So you can just bring your keys up after church. Um, but I was in the, in the sanctuary one night working on music and all of a sudden I didn't think anyone was there and a door opened and it was Pastor Rick. He was the associate pastor. And he walked in and he looked at me and he said, Bob, would you come to my office? I'd like to talk to you. And I knew I was busted, busted right then. I go into the office, I sit down, I can't even look at him. 
And then he says this. He says, listen, he says, I want you to know that I'm on your side. I want you to know that I love you and I care about you. And I want you to know that for the last two weeks, I've been praying for you. And I've been praying for this talk. And I wanted to pray for it before we had it. And then he says this. He says, I know that you have a key that you're not supposed to have. And so I want you to just give me the key. No sudden moves. We'll pray together. You can be forgiven for this incredible Baptist sin that you've committed. And then you can move on so that God can use you and you can be free from this. And let me tell you, that was a very powerful moment for me because it was apparent that he actually cared for me that he didn't take glee in what he was doing, that he didn't feel better than me or holier than thou. He actually really cared about me. And he set an example for me about how this is done. Right, because a lot of times this is not how it's done, is it? It's done with love and compassion and prayer. I tell you that story because I try to imagine, imagine a church where this is the way it's always done. Imagine a church community where we realize we are our brother's keeper. So when we see another brother in Christ or somebody who isn't in this body, but somebody that's in our world, in our oikos, and they are stuck in their sin, that we don't just drive by, we don't just say you're getting what you deserve, we don't pull over and lecture them with the window rolled down, nor do we gloss over their sin. We pray for them, we pray for them, we pray for them, and then we talk with them, we love them, we help them, we do whatever we can to help them. Because the goal is not to say, I'm right and you're wrong, it's to help them be restored and move forward. Imagine a church where that's how we function. Imagine a family, a neighborhood, a community. This is what God has called us to. So here's my question for you again. Who is it in your life right now who is stuck? They are stuck in their sin, a sin of their own making and they're guilty. They need you to pray for them. Somebody needs to be praying for them, and that's you. Who is that? Who is it that you need to talk to? Lovingly, all prayed up about it with the heart of Christ. But you do need to talk to them. And how will you do that? And when will you do that? Well, let me pray for us, and then uh, next week's passage will be much lighter, I, I think. Okay, let's, let's pray together.